don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, queer suburban imaginaries with Karen Tungsen. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Karen Thompson, uh, who is an associate professor of English and Gender Studies at the uh, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and uh, she's the author of the book uh, Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, that we're going to talk about today. Uh, hello Karen. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, we're recording this podcast on, uh, on uh, it's, it's it ought to be noted, we're recording this podcast at, uh, on our Mandela uh, Parkway in Auckland. That's, that's yeah. quite, a, it's quite a name for a street. Uh, and uh, appropriate to relocations in a public <laughs> venue, a public chain venue, yeah, actually. Sure. So hopefully the noise won't be too loud. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and so today we're going to talk about, uh, uh, we're going to have the second, the second uh, podcast about suburbia, so I'm, I'm excited to maybe have even more of those, but uh, before before we get to that, uh, Karen, would you mind telling us what you're working on right now? I think that's, that's quite interesting in the, in the following of this first book. Yeah, I'm actually working on a book uh, about karaoke called Empty Orchestra, uh, Karaoke Critical Apparatus, and I think of the book as something of a double album because one dimension of it is about uh, the sort of intellectual, emotional, uh, you know, sort of affective um, and social elements of karaoke that we all are sort of familiar with or talk about in a global sense. And the other side of it, the other dimension of it, is about the history of karaoke uh, and a media archaeology of the form and its sort of um, its invention in Japan and the Philippines, at least the first machines, and uh, also how those machines have evolved over time and the different technologies associated with karaoke um, have become part of the fabric of the way we think about art, imitation, um, copying in a post-digital age. I see. Mm -hmm. uh, so so today, today we will talk about your first book, which yeah. uh, was Relocations, as I mentioned. Uh, and um, it's like, as I as I mentioned, it's a second second uh, uh, podcast we're doing about a sort of uh, uh, what I like to call a counter history of suburbia. Uh, uh, the first one was with uh, Olivia Ann, uh -huh. and we discussed about the we discussed about the, the suburban house itself uh, being. Um, uh, being in a high, highly gendered construction, mm -hmm. and, and uh, if I if I if I summarize the conversation uh, uh, quickly, a way to look at this domestic architecture as as being uh, an apparatus for uh, a, a post-war apparatus for women to be back to into a non-paid labor uh, mm -hmm. domesticity. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so today we're going to talk about something uh, not completely different, but not completely the same either. Uh, not quite, uh, um, not quite uh, related to the house, to the domesticity of the house itself, but more of the uh, the outside of suburbia, mm -hmm. I suppose. Uh, I suppose the, f the first uh, thing we should discuss about is the, the very notion of imaginary, because my, my own definitions come from a Caribbean a philosopher and mm -hmm. poet, uh, Edouard Glissant. Mm -hmm. uh, so, sort of, uh, 
cloud of past encounters and experience that, that form a, a sort of social identity, I suppose. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, what would be your own definition when you, when you use it in the title of your book? Well, the reason that I chose Imaginaries for the title of my book, I mean, it's sort of certainly influenced by, by you know, we were talking about the Glissant notion of the imaginary, but I think that the reason that I chose it was because um, it would have been already contentious to say a, a queer suburban aesthetic, mm. right? Because purportedly there's no such thing as an aesthetic that inheres in a space like the suburbs. It's a place devoid of the aesthetic or devoid of art, which was obviously a point I was going to argue with, but also because... Um, the forms that I was talking about, the sort of the forms of expression that were documented in the book, um, themselves would be excluded from the realm of the aesthetic because they are part of everyday performance or um, more mundane or do-it-yourself or repurposed uh, sort of popular performances. And so, it, 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 imaginaries really comes from the act of you know very simply of imagining, and I talk about it a lot of imagining in your room alone. Uh, in suburban space. So often we talk about the sort of privacy generated by suburban space and in fact the isolation that even happens within the home and between the people who exist in that home. And so one of the recurring images of the book in fact is the sort of the queer of color uh, youth who feels isolated in that space and who begins to conjure or imagine worlds beyond that space or at least a world adjacent to that space Um, and so the imaginary is partly about that act or about that sort of dreaming into being that happens um, that we sort of neglect because we think of the suburbs as such a soulless place devoid of imagination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose I spoke a little bit too fast saying <laughs> that we would talk only of the outside but more of the dialogue <laughs> yeah. that happens between the domesticity of the, of the, of the dream, yeah. let's say, of the imagination and, and, and what is uh, outside. Yeah. Um, Well, there's a lot of repurposing of those spaces inside yeah. and outside. I think um, that's one of the things that I'm interested in is that the, the, the transformative work that happens upon private and public space in the context of the suburbs. Hmm. Um, and uh, co coming, from, uh, coming from the outside, the imaginary that we have uh, of, of suburbia, I mean, even more coming from a, a European perspective, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the, the mm -hmm. American suburbia, uh, we, we have this... Um, Uh, this narrative that, uh, uh, as I mentioned, like in the first podcast, we tried to to to, to deploy and to show how it's uh, how it was very erroneous. Uh, but this sort of um, this sort of very uh, uh, very uh, wide uh, uh, space. And you actually, I, I would like to quote you uh, uh, at this point because I think it's it's great how you shows how. Both the norm, uh, the, the racial and social norms are uh, combining very well with capitalism, and in the very um, modifications that are being made on the on the, on the suburban houses themselves. And you you mm -hmm. say, uh, whereas, and I quote, whereas the white male bourgeois homeowner renovates and improves, quotes, enhancing property values through his self-expression, it is women, immigrants, and people of color. Essentially, all others who ornament and overadorn their home in gaudy displays of pride, which are paradoxically guaranteed to diminish property values. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking a lot about the different ways, also, in which I just imagine my own family sort of adorning um, their home. The, the, the sort of mid-century 
a suburban enclave they live in in Riverside, California, which I write about in the book, um, you know, is a sort of space where all these imperial cultures collide. When my father first moved there, he was, uh, my stepfather first moved there, he was, uh, you know, a young teen, and it was a primarily white um, middle-class, upwardly mobile neighborhood, and at this point, um, it's diversified considerably, and it's sort of working, uh, working class interracial cultures sort of like coming together in a space that used to be much more cookie cutter. Everyone's lawn looked the same. Um, everyone's paint job pretty much looked the same. Even when I was really small, but by the time I was a teenager, you'd see that, um, yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, people would, the Chinese family would hang a mirror outside of their home to sort of, in a feng shui move, to kind of deflect things. There'd be uh, larger Latino families who would be uh, around the corner and had a propensity for, um, you know, having barbecues and lots of people over, sometimes out front. The same with my family. My family's grill is not in the backyard because there's too much stuff back there. They put their grill in the front yard with, like, a porch swing, and so we hang out in the front instead of the backyard. And, um, you know, and my mother has decided, you know, whereas my grandmother, my, my, my stepfather is white, and his mother obviously was white, and so um, the way she had the, the house set up, it was, a, again, a much more trim and lean mid-century sort of a suburban home, but my mother, uh, in her own customizations to the space, has started to add, you know, her own sort of Asian garden um, and she has a whole like little area with rocks and Buddhas of numerous sorts. Not that we're Buddhist at all, but it's just sort of she started collecting them. So <laughs> there, there are the different ways in which you know people try to make their personalized mark on the space. Sometimes it's through a paint job. Sometimes it's through accessories on the lawn. People always joke, you know, sort of you must you must know the joke about the plastic pink flamingo on the lawn or mm. right you know and so so that's just one iteration of it the kitsch objects that um you know Dwarfs. exactly exactly gnomes and <laughs> and such so so this is just a kind of a contemporary variation on that with different cultures contributing to the mix and mm -hmm. you know not just sort of like the kind of quaint anglo-european touches that would sometimes happen like with the gnomes or mm -hmm. or what have you and, and I suppose to go back to their, to, the, to their appreciation or rather the non-appreciation of capitalism for those modifications, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting to wonder whether it's an aesthetic problem that capitalism uh, uh, consider or if it's the bodies themselves that, that, are, that these semiotics reveal, like this population, uh, uh, mostly non-white normative uh, populations that, that would be revealed by those modifications from, from outside of the world. Yeah, it's where sort of capitalism runs amok um, and sort of um, really kind of exceeds, you know, the question of taste. Or, or not exceeds, it doesn't exceed the question of taste, but rather uh, it becomes a situation where, you know, you know, the logic of the aesthetic becomes divorced from, you know, the sort of uh, logic of consumption, right? And so I think that, I think that in this sense, you know, um, or at least when we think a lot about retailers who make all their money in the suburbs, they just want to sell stuff. And they encourage all of these different forms that have become pathologized now, including hoarding. Yes, you need like 10 electric fans of different sizes and shapes in your home. Just keep buying, right? Um, and it's sort of uh, that, that sort of ethos where um, 
you know, a more aesthetically driven ethos and community driven ethos where people police each other around, you know, like ensuring the sanctity of their property value has shifted, mm-hmm. I think, in certain contexts, particularly in the working class suburbs that you find in Southern California that I write about in the book. Um, and whereas you see a hypervigilance in other places like Orange County, uh, particularly in the gated communities, to heavily police and, and uh, deter such modifications. Um, I talked about Cota de Casa a little bit in the book, which is well known for being the sort of um, gated community that the Real Housewives of Orange County uh, original ones lived in, right? And, um, you know, there are many sort of ordinances that, that prevent um, these flourishes of expression. But over time, it just starts to happen, I think, uh, even in those environments that are heavily policed. So I suppose we just uh, demystify the, the, the normative uh, racial aspect of, of suburbia, but mm-hmm. there's a, a second thing you do in, in your book, which is to uh, demystify also the, the sort of uh, uh, the site of where queer culture is being created, mm-hmm. and that is uh, too often, in your opinion, uh, created within cities, whereas the suburbia is... Uh, uh, the, the, at least the, the West Coast. I mean, you, you, uh, something I should have said is that you, you mostly talk about the Orange County mm-hmm. suburbia, mm-hmm. and uh, within within those territories, it was a, a huge uh, production mm-hmm. of, of queer culture. Well, in Inland Empire too, but but I think that it's sort of, I think that what is, it, it's less to say okay, you know, queer culture exists in the suburbs. It's less than it's it's not. I'm not just trying to sort of. Mm-hmm you know, repopulate the suburbs with, like, these queer people that we've forgotten. So it's not an addendum to the national narrative of, you know, where queer cultures reside. Like, look here in suburbia, there are queer cultures too. Uh, But rather, uh, one of the the, the project's goals is to actually just um, get sort of queer scholars, um, queer people to acknowledge that a lot of what we consider these really kind of intense subcultural forms of queer expression were germinated in the suburbs and and you know even punk rock okay like it, they punk rock rose in the british suburbs right so we think of it as this london thing or the sort of urbanist subcultural thing and it's interesting that we transpose immediately whatever seems subcultural into something that's urban whereas i think that a lot of um, a lot of the artists, performers of a kind of queer of color world in Southern California and Los Angeles in particular, were very much influenced by the sort of suburban architectures and sort of clashes uh, that, uh, you know, were super constitutive of their own experience of existing in sprawl instead of in an urban, you know, sort of vertical urban environment. So, yeah, so I think that... Um, the real point for me is to just um, sort of push our acknowledgement of the fact that these many subcultural forms, and in particular also queer of color cultures, um, in many respects were germinated in precisely those spots. And I trace that not only through a sort of case study of different performers and, and artists, but also in queer th- theory itself. So, for example, in the work of um, Jose Munoz, who, who just recently passed away, a dear friend who recently passed away, um, one of the most sort of formative scenes for me in his book, Disidentifications, is when he describes this moment of watching, you know, alone on television late at night, past the time he's supposed to, in his suburban home, uh, the swishy spectacle of Truman Capote, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that 
struck a chord with me, that description in this book, Disidentifications, which is largely about sort of um, queer performers who are part and parcel of these urban queer of color scenes. And so, um, and also Jennifer Doyle in Sex Objects writes about, um, you know, the, the sort of the suburban boys next door filling her mailbox with these perverted, like, Victoria's Secret and porn catalogs. Um, and one of her moments of sexual awakening was, you know, precisely through that weird mediated suburban encounter. And those things signal to me the fact that there is a kind of queer imaginary, a queer theoretical imaginary that also is germinated in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, something I'm, I'm particularly interested in because you can help the architect in me <laughs> uh, 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 being interested in that, but uh, the, it's it's the space of this uh, of this imaginary. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're describing the the minimals, uh, the cars themselves mm-hmm. as a, I think if I quote you as a isolation chambers that that uh, uh, prevents any form of social encounters. But mm-hmm. and they're um, uh, and then within within their within this more. Uh, Explicitly defined a uh, uh, queer imaginary. You, you have uh, uh, this club studio case that maybe you can tell us mm-hmm. about. I mean, can you tell us in general about the about this space, the spatial spatialization of this imaginary? Well, I think that that's that's one of the key elements of the book is to talk about how these mundane, cha- like characterless chain spaces, become repurposed or transformed out of necessity particularly for people who are seeking out other forms of sociability in spaces that are designed to keep people separate and private, right? And so one example, of course, is the um, club that was open from the late uh, mid-late 80s to early 90s in at Knott's Berry Farm, the amusement park called Studio K. It was initially built for uh, to make parents feel like it was a safe place for their teens to go dancing, um, and, you know, because they'd be under supervision of the park. Uh, it was all, you know, phrased as uh, through the rhetoric of safety, security, and supervision. And yet, it, it you know, um, you provide that kind of space to, you know, that kind of energy, to that kind of youthful energy. And what you have is, you know, within the confines of that security, people transforming its purpose into a space of experimentation, encounter, you know, with, with music, with sexuality, with all sorts of things, you know. Um, and the same thing with, um, like, we're in a generic hotel right now, actually, mm. a chain hotel, <laughs> sort of on the outskirts of Oakland. You can hear the ambient noises of that. But, you know, one of the things is, like, in these places, again, you know, um, there used to be these parties that people would book, also in Orange County, or but also in Riverside, in, in the Inland Empire. It would be, um, they book a ballroom, which you think of as for conferences or weddings or reunions or something, and they'd have a dance party there. They have a DJ dance party, like a club, you know. And you think like a club's supposed to be in a more ambient space than this terribly lit ballroom. But when that's what you have available, when you have that chain space available, you're forced to think creatively about transforming it. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about those uh, those mini malls as well as that you've been uh, you've been uh, look, looking at and. Yeah, especially in the in um, in the literature also yeah. in the Inland Empire. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that one of the things that um, when we deride the mini mall, especially its you know sort of um, ubiquity in Southern California, we forget 
that in terms of you know immigrant entrepreneurship, uh, it is like the sort of entry level space, the one space that you can afford to sort of cultivate your own business or a new business. Whereas um, we think of immigrant enclaves in different cities, like your Chinatowns, et cetera, like these neighborhoods that suddenly turn into these, or like even Koreatown in Los Angeles, these urban communities where you know, space may have been cheap and then you sort of build around it and then you kind of create a culture and community around it. The same is happening, and the same has happened for a long time in strip malls throughout Southern California. Some of the most amazing um, and most authentic sort of food from different regions of China, different nations in Asia, different regions of Vietnam, um, you can find in, in the San Gabriel Valley, right, in these strip malls that are, look otherwise completely generic um, and that are just these little boxes, right? But they become these the point of entry for entrepreneurship for, for immigrants, particularly the post-70s um, mm-hmm. in the U.S., yeah. And... Uh, I, I suppose I was particularly interested in, in this aspect of the book as well because uh, uh, I tend to have a very uh, uh, maybe uh, <laughs> maybe European again yeah. uh, 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 critique of the of the mall as mm-hmm. a, as a space of consumption mm-hmm. as a space of hyper police behavior mm-hmm. and and uh, sort of replacement of the public space into into a space that would you would be able to to privatize the security force and, and sort of select. Who you want in, who you do not want in, but I, I really enjoy the fact that you're you're complexifying uh, this space much more, and even you complexifying the 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 idea of consumption itself because you you talk a lot about pop culture and and concept. So uh, I really like how you how you uh, complexify much more this uh, simplistic vision and, and talks about uh, how uh, pop culture is very much uh, part of those uh, uh, queer suburban imaginaries and, and how uh, uh, pop culture also involves a certain form of consumption as well. But like all, all of this is considered in a much more complexified way than mm-hmm. the kind of binary. Uh, visions that I sometimes fall into. Okay. Uh, could, could you explain a little bit these complexities, I suppose? Well, I think it's just a matter of, um, you know, that the sort of, I think that, you know, in this age of late capitalism we're in, there's no sort of pure and unmediated form of encounter with any object. Mm-hmm. Like, everything is attached to its its stat, its value as, in some, as some kind of commodity, you know, that's a very cynical read. I, I understand that sort of that's a very cynical read, but that enables one that's, it enables my own sort of relationship to things which can be a little bit more reparative. And and the thing is, you know, I think I was, I, I've had a couple of encounters with folks who've asked, you know, well, is your, you know, solution that we should just consume things and consume popular music or consume, you know, um, you know, uh, television, that kind of thing, uh, mindlessly, etc. I mean, this argument has already been had. Many people have hashed it over uh, numerous times. I think that it's very naive and also kind of patron at once naive and at once patronizing for others to assume that you know the encounter with popular culture of any kind is 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 um, entirely uncritical or is not transformative in its own way. I think that, you know, um, uh, Henry Jenkins, who I collaborate on a book series with at NYU Press, um, you know, and and he was sort of um, one of the leading or early figures of fan studies. And some of my own, um, like, students, uh, Alexis Lothian, who's now uh, uh, going to be a faculty member at the University of Maryland, 
Um, she started this journal called the Journal of uh, Transformative Works and Cultures, uh, sort of inspired by uh, some of the fan studies stuff. And I've always been sort of inspired by that as well because I, I wanted to sort of explore the problematic relationship I had to these objects that I knew, you know, didn't represent me or represented me poorly or excluded me from the vision of the popular or the mainstream. And yet, you know, yet we have these affective attachments to these things, right? Sort of like, why do I love John Hughes movies, even though he depicts... Asians exclusively through the figure of like Long Duck Dong, like this terribly racist figure, right? And so, anyway, like I wanted to kind of think through, and in and, and relocations depict those problematic um, and vexed encounters with objects that were not meant for us, or that may have been meant to exclude us explicitly, and think about what transformative, again, imaginative work is happening in relation to those things. Um, in many respects, again, um, the work of Jose Munoz, and in particularly in disidentifications, was really crucial for me in, in sort of thinking about this to um, to disidentify with a sort of um, problematic or you know um, hegemonic, sometimes you know really kind of manipulative uh, object, right? To understand one's disidentification with that, like as a transformative possibility. And so, um, among these, uh, these, uh, among the components of this uh, pop culture, one of them was rather su- uh, su- surprising for me, which is uh, something you already mentioned, which is uh, the British pop culture as well. And <laughs> can you can you tell us about this, this yeah. ambiguous tension? Well, it's interesting because you know the sort of love of British pop culture is a generational and a regional thing that I noticed first and foremost in Southern California. Uh, in the 80s, when I first moved, uh, as I depict in the book, when I first sort of settled down in the U.S. in a more kind of definitive way. And as I met people, um, you know, in my adult life who also grew up in that region, I found that there was this sort of attachment to this kind of, um, to that same sort of British new wave pop culture. In part, it's because of, you know, pop imperialism in its many ways. It's sort of the kind of global tentacles of popular culture and and how, um, you know, of course, we, we're, we're not safe from any kind of pop culture from anywhere. For example, I really also really love German pop music from that period. Um, but the other thing about that, and wh- what I write about in Relocations, is 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 something that's is more specific to the region itself and its relationship to the sort of shadow uh, imperial history of Britain's presence in the region in the late 19th century. I sort of imagine that like the kind of architectures that are left from that period, the Victorian homes, these other things, um, kind of worm their way um, sort of into the unconscious, into the, like, the sort of uh, environmental unconscious, right? Uh, and so... So that's one of the things I really wanted to explore was that sort of attachment. At the same time, it became a more exotic place to imagine than like living in the suburban U.S., right? There was something um, about, you know, Britain that I, I at least, and I write about this in the book too, sort of exoticized and fantasized about. It's a kind of something that was not as mundane as U.S. culture, something that... Um, for its foreignness seemed uh, to speak to me in a more profound way. 
Well, so I just want to point out to you, because, you know, like probably the people listening to this have heard some, a lot of racket in the background, some mm-hmm. ambient noise, and I just had to point out to Leopold that um, what was happening is precisely some of the stuff that I write about in the book with young uh, teenagers of color in particular um, who don't have a space to sort of have parties at home or, or, or they can't because their parents are strict or the various things, right? It's, it's a co- common phenomenon in the suburbs. They seem to be accumulating, uh, you know, bodies. sort of, exactly, <laughs> many bodies that are coming through for some kind of party. It, it began with two people. You saw we're carrying a couple things in. A couple of them keep coming down, and every time one of them comes down, they're bringing like four or five more people in that room, and they look about, you know, between the ages of the 13 and 17, and it seems apparent to me that they're talk, they're doing that repurposing of space, that um, they're performing that, the, mm. exactly what I t- write about in the book. And, you know, so mm-hmm. if you stick around, you might become privy to this precisely, you know, witness to the, you know, what I talk about with transforming the kind of chain space into some sort of party or scene that it wasn't intended to mm. hold. Uh so yeah, we'll and, see if any more comes through. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, and uh, mm-hmm. well, I'm glad because it it brings uh, it brings uh, somehow the topic of uh, performativity and mm-hmm. and uh, and the, the sort of I mean uh, what we know well being uh, being also very much part of the the, the normative uh, uh, the normative uh, component of of society related mm-hmm. to bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so I'd like to ask you about one particular performative story that you, you you tell about in the book which is the um, uh, the artist uh, Lin Shan's character of uh, JJ Shinwa that uh, uh, good friend of uh, phenomenalist uh, uh, Mimi Tianyuan has mm-hmm. been writing uh, extensively about as well mm-hmm. so could you could you tell us more about this character? Yeah, um, this character belongs actually to Lin Chan, who um, you know, who I've known for a long time um, since college, actually. And um, it struck me; I, I was just really taken by the direction that I've, I've been sort of following her work for a long period of time. And I was at that moment, which was about ten years ago now, the, the direction that her work was taken taking as it was building around this character, um, JJ Chinua. And as I explain in the book. Um, she came up with JJ's last name after a trip to Paris, in fact, um, you know, in a trip to Belleville and seeing the word chinois everywhere and with her realizing that she could kind of play that up and kind of play upon the sort of American fantasy of fancy Frenchness by adopting a French name uh, with this persona that she was using as a kind of a gender ambiguous figure to make herself more comfortable and move through different scenes, uh, particularly art worlds, um, when she didn't want to feel awkward or inhabiting her own body. And so as that persona grew and uh, gained some notoriety in various art worlds and art scenes in New York, um, Lynn began to sort of craft an origin story or narrative for JJ that uh, was one that sort of paralleled her own to a certain extent that began in California and near Northern California. And so it was a real kind of fantastic reimagining of that migration 
from uh, a sort of rural and then suburban spaces in, in California to the big city, New York, the sort of standard pattern of gay migration, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this was actually really the first text that inspired the entire project because I just finished a dissertation on Victorian uh, nonfiction prose, right? So I was working in another idiom, another nation, and I was, so my dissertation was done and I was really excited by this new work. And so um, I just, uh, I wrote a conference paper about it and then I started really kind of diving into the ideas and concepts much more and that from that, the seed of that person, from J.J. Chinois was spawned the entire project of relocations. Is that good? Well, from from the from the origin of the book, we are we're able to to conclude this conversation because uh, 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 our our paths happen to luckily cross uh, quite literally because you're you're driving south, I'm driving north along, along exactly. the west coast, uh, and uh, back and home to the the little boxes in the the, the suburban sprawl yeah, and the and, freeways. Yeah, and for me, not back home yet, but <laughs> soon enough in their in their uh, scary. Uh, <laughs> Scary streets of New York, uh, uh, no, no longer so scary. <laughs> um, Karen, thank you very much to Let's, take the yeah. time to talk about to talk about this book that I obviously recommend to everyone to read, and uh, and uh, I, I know that uh, some some of the regular listeners of Archipelago will be very very happy to hear you. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for for inviting me to do this interview, and again. Um, if, I'm sorry if I'm a little bit addled coming from coming off on a long road trip, but also I hope that rather than being an irritation, the sort of ambient noise of the location of this interview will be one that conjures precisely some of the kind of improvisational social worlds that I talk about in the book. Yeah, so and creates more imaginaries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thank you.